to my podcast. What's it like to run one of the most important organizations in the world? We're going to find out today with Jonathan Greenblatt, my friend Jonathan Greenblatt, head of the Anti-Defamation League. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for having me, David. Uh, prior to joining the ADL, Jonathan served in the White House as special assistant to President Obama as director of social innovation and civic participation. And he was one of the co-founders of Ethos Water that ended up selling to Starbucks. He also founded All for Good, one of the largest databases of volunteer opportunities on the internet. He studied social entrepreneurship at UCLA and done all kinds of things. What's it like, Jonathan, to go from a businessman, social entrepreneur, professor, and one day you get a call to run one of the world's most important organizations? Well. First of all, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, sometimes you wonder about how important it really is, right? Um, but I will tell you that the job feels like a privilege every day. So I've been blessed to have a series of sort of professional opportunities that have given me the opportunity for personal growth and that have been satisfying not just financially but on a human level, on a soulful level. So whether it was public service and working in the White House, whether it was starting companies that created social benefits as well as economic value for our investors and shareholders, and now this job, which is working for a much more complicated um, constituent, the Jewish people. <laughs> and um, the world at large. And the world at large. So the stakes are high. The, the, the issues are complicated. And the pace is is fast. You know, I was I heard you speak yesterday at, at an event, and as you were speaking, I was thinking, man, oh man, this guy's job revolves so much around bad news, and you're it's almost like your a whole part of your mission is just to find all the bad news and well. capture the you know all the the hate speech and the anti-Semitism and so forth. Does that start wearing you down? Well, look, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say, okay, well, why does the ADL exist? And our core purpose at the ADL... And you're what, 100 years old? 105 years old. Mm -hmm. The core purpose today is the same core purpose uh, that was present when they founded the organization 105 years ago this month, to protect the Jewish people. That is why we exist, to protect the Jewish people. And to do that, sometimes you play defense and you try to stop hate speech when it happens and you call out the anti-Semites when they try to poison the public conversation and you call out the bigots when they try to intimidate or harass Jewish people mm -hmm. or others, and I'll talk about that. And sometimes you play offense. It's rather than just you know doing the whack-a-mole game of trying to you know stop the stereotypes, you also try to create systemic change that makes it more difficult for these kinds of ideas to infect, again, like now, the public square. Systemic change, I'm very interested in that because you spoke about that yesterday and this idea of seeding and planting healthy seeds mm -hmm. so that you minimize sort of some of those problems. Talk about that because you go into, you know... Uh, you go into police departments yeah. and schools and so forth. Talk about that. So the ADL is known, I would say, for attacking anti-Semitism and trying to stop bigotry when it happens. In reality, we achieve that, or we achieve our goal of protecting the Jewish people by doing three things, advocacy, education, and law enforcement. So number one, we do advocacy. We try to change laws through the courts and through Congress. Or, or legislative and judiciary and executive branches of government at all levels. 
to protect the Jewish people and other minorities, to um, stand up for the First Amendments and the freedom enshrined in our Constitution, and to defend the state of Israel, the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. So we do that at the local, state, and federal level, and the international level, as it were, advocacy. Secondly, and I should say on the advocacy front, it's not only working through, again, Congress and the courts, it's also the court of public opinion. Secondly, we work in education because we realized long ago to change hearts and minds and to really stop hate, you can't you know, legislate your way out of that, right? You've got to really get at people's soul. So over the years, ADL has evolved and emerged into one of the largest providers of anti-hate content in schools across the country. We reach upwards of 2 million American school children every year. What do you tell them? We're talking to them about, oftentimes we might be brought into a school when there's a sort of a hate incident. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, anti-Semitic in nature, homophobic, racist, xenophobic. And then the content that we're delivering to these kids through curricular type lessons and extracurricular type assemblies and activities is all about universalism. It's all about respect and tolerance. So it allows us to fight anti-Semitism by contextualizing it as one of many forms of intolerance that we've got to stop. And then thirdly, um, we work with law enforcement to track hate crimes, to investigate hate crimes. We have a whole research division that does that. And thirdly, we train law enforcement. The ADL is the largest trainer of law enforcement in America on how to deal with hate and hate crimes. We train upwards of 15,000 officers every year. And so to get back to the question you asked, like how do you create systemic change? Imagine a world in which every single student in America, when they learn the Pledge of Allegiance, they learn the reading and writing and arithmetic, and they learn the fourth R of respect for other people. You know, I have to throw a curveball at you now because I have a theory, I would have called them years ago, that some of the best fighters against anti-Semitism in America have been the comedians. Mm Mm-hmm. Because uh, we 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 <laughs> yeah. show we show Americans how we don't take ourselves that seriously. Yeah. We can poke fun at ourselves, yeah. and when you make somebody laugh, you're really being generous. And this idea, uh, because love is made out of affection and respect. Yeah. So so much of what we've done through through the social activism and the lawyers and the doctors and the professionals have earned respect, and then uh, the comedians they earn the affection. Mm. Bit of love. I'm, mm. uh, you and I have never talked about this. No, but there's lot, some truth to that. I mean, look, it's people like Jackie Mason and Jerry Seinfeld and Woody Allen and Billy Crystal. Like, literally, these are the people who kind of normalize the Jewish experience for America. Yes, yes. And so they, and they sort of represent the Jews. And because mm-hmm. uh, I remember once the ADL came down really hard on a Academy Award situation. Mm-hmm. I forget the guy's name. And it was your predecessor, mm-hmm. and I took him on. Really? Yeah, because I thought if it's not good for the Jews if we show America that we're losing our sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And if we start taking everything yeah. so seriously, and it was the, the, uh, <clears throat> the host of the Academy Awards... He made um, he made some some jokes yeah, yeah, yeah. based on Jewish stereotypes, right? Yeah, maybe Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> exactly. Maybe a few years ago. Seth yeah, MacFarlane. I thought it was hysterical, and I'm thinking, you know, do we really have to connect this to those, to those tropes? From well, this? so here's the thing that you're. I mean, whether intentionally or not, you're making a really good point. I mean, if you think about why we are where we are today as a people, I would argue that the Jewish people of America, American Jews, 
are probably the most successful community in diaspora in the history of, uh, of the Jewish experience. And I'm talking thousands of years. We have achieved at the highest levels. It's, and we've been integrated and accepted and to some's dismay assimilated. So here's the thing. We've got to be really careful how we use that privilege. And very aware that we need to be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit. So can we say we can get a scoop here? If the ADL starts a humor division, it will be. <laughs> it started right here with the Jewish Journal. <laughs> Shani, you're the witness. Okay, great. Duly noted. Duly noted. So you've had a you've had quite a journey. You're now on three years. Mm-hmm. The head yeah, of just over three years. Organization. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me some of the toughest moments you've had so far. Oof. The day before I started. Literally on his last day on the job, Abe Fox and my predecessor. A legend. A legend, an icon. Um, at the job, 50 years, literally, to the day. He uh, announced ADL's position on the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, mm-hmm. JCPOA. And ADL came out against the Iran deal. And then that was the last thing he did, and then I started the next day. And so then the question was asked, well, what are you going to do? And a lot of my former colleagues from the West Wing, a lot of my friends, I think, had an expectation that I would, at a time when the Jewish community was really debating this, and it was not clear where everyone would land. And there were folks like APAC very against it. There were folks like J Street very for it. Where would the ADL land? This long-standing, centrist, right, reasoned voice. And I said, well, look, it's hard for me to reject the JCPOA on the basis and this was part of the initials, ADL's initial rationale on the basis of the um, inspections regime. Because I don't know anyone in my organization or in our orbit that knows more about, I don't know, nuclear physics than the nuclear physicist who was our energy secretary, Ernie Moniz, because I worked with him. And then some people argued against it on the basis of the snapback, the financial sanctions. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know anyone in ADL in our orbit who knows more about sanctions and the global banking system than Jack Lew, who was our Treasury Secretary, because I worked with him. However, for me, the reason why the deal was so problematic was because Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, this government, this theocratic, dogmatic, rigid, revolutionary government, is the largest state sponsor of anti-Semitism in the world. They are the largest supporter of terror in the world. They are an inveterate and, and uh, unapologetic uh, antagonist of the Jewish state for the very reason that it's a Jewish state and no other reason. And so on that basis, there's no way I could countenance an agreement that would normalize a regime that's so abnormal. And so I actually doubled down on our opposition to the deal. So was well, that- I got to tell you, at the time, we hadn't spoken then. Mm. That got you a lot of credibility with mm. the Jewish community uh, because- most people were expecting that you would just follow your old boss, President Obama, and the fact that you had the guts to go against it. Well, look, so uh, easy on the facts, right? Easy on the facts. Hard to put it in full force. I, gotta, I mean, I, I think I lost a lot of those friendships and those relationships. On the other hand, would I do it again in a heartbeat? Because I think part of the ADL gene is mm-hmm. to identify evil. Mm-hmm. and to understand and appreciate the reality of evil. Mm-hmm. And there's an evil to the regime. There that is the no deal, question about and, that. And I think the last couple of years have sort of shown that 
and expose the myth of reform versus hardliners. It's all one line, which is the reason why people are protesting in the streets as they are all over the country, in towns and cities and the bazaars and the thoroughfares. All that being said, that was a that was an easy thing to, for me. It was an easy call because it's so clear on the facts, but it was complicated in what it did to some of those longstanding relationships I had. So that would be a good example of a hard thing. And that, that was day one. <laughs> that was literally day yeah, one. welcome. That was literally Were, were you disappointed in President Obama's uh, refusal to support the revolution in 09? Were you there then? No. No, okay. I was here in L.A. building businesses. Yeah. Uh, no, I wasn't. In- I mean, you're involved with the Persian community and so forth. And it seems to me we're on the cusp of something revolutionary from a lot of what my friends tell me. It's kind of serious. They've seen that the regime has spent billions of dollars, you know, fighting wars outside of the country rather than helping its own people. Do you sense something going on? Well, I'm not an Iran expert, but what I also hear from people in the Iranian community is something is there's something going on right now that's quite profound. Mm-hmm. And it's bigger than 09. So the rallies may have been bigger in 09 in Tehran itself, but these things are happening organically all over the country. And even as a regime attempts to kind of push it down by turning off social media and by other draconian measures, in fact, it keeps popping up. They can't stop it. Right. So, you know, I think the best thing would be uh, a peaceful outcome for the Iranian people that gives them the opportunity to enjoy the fruits of their civilization, which itself is thousands of years old, and to realize their own God-given potential without not being determined by the dictates of some octanagerian, you know, in a black robe mm-hmm. who thinks he hears from God on high. I don't think that that kind of dog was helpful for anyone. For sure. Now, while, refu- while going against the deal got you a lot of credibility with the right, uh, there's some other things you did. Were you, was it a difficult decision for you to come out against the nomination of Pompeo, Mike Pompeo? As the I, so Secretary of State, because so, yeah. some, some of the criticism was that you were taking sort of a political position. Yeah, so I, I really disagree with that. I mean, the eight, so, and I would also not even agree with the characterization that we came out against. So we raised serious questions about where Secretary Pompeo, or at that point the nominee, would be. Why? On the basis of things, the statements that he's made about Islam. So look, I have no, you know, I have no, um, what's the word? romanticized view of religion in general. I'm proud to be Jewish. I'm proud to go to shul every week and observe Shabbat. Uh, I think other faiths have, uh, I have deep respect for the Christ, for Christianity, for Islam, for Hinduism, for all these faiths. That being said, there are problematic characters in every faith. The challenge that we had with Secretary Pompeo, which we raised, and I wrote an op-ed in the Post laying out some of my questions, and we post questions, as the ADL has done for decades and decades and decades, we post questions to the confirmation, to the Senate committee that was doing the confirmation hearings. Questions are about these sweeping generalizations he's made about Islam and about the nature of the faith and whatnot that we think are really problematic for a Secretary of State who's going to represent all Americans, including Muslim Americans. So it's on that basis that we laid out a series of questions. Right. I think the uh, the the mood in the country now is so divisive, and it's like there's a hair trigger kind of uh, attitude where people are ready to jump on yeah. anything. Yeah, and everything is seen now today in in August 2018 through a very sort of political lens. 
So if, even if you're going to post questions, right. the act of posing questions, people perceive as having a political bias. Correct, because you're going against the Republican or you're criticizing sure. or asking questions on the Republican. It seems to be the number one dividing factor. In fact, some of the numbers I read recently, beyond race, gender, and what have you, it's like the who do you vote for? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, I, as I said yesterday in this event we were both at, I care less about how you vote and more about what you value, right? And I care less about what you say and more about what you do. So we but try Trump to Trump has made that. everybody's lives miserable, hasn't he, Jonathan? I mean, he's made your life miserable. He's well, complicated everything. He's brought out the worst in so many people uh, from both sides. I think the reaction, even against him, mm -hmm. I think goes over the top, and mm -hmm. that annoys me. The reactions for him goes over the top, and that annoys me. Mm -hmm. It's just a mess. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that President Trump is a very unique character. I think he's a bit of a paradox. Right? We've talked about this at great length at the ADL. Uh, he has a Jewish son-in-law and a Jewish daughter, a Jew by choice, and Jewish grandchildren you know, running around the residence right, and attending Jewish day school in Washington, D.C., their new home. And lighting Shabbat candles. Yep. And he's been incredibly supportive of the Jewish state and deeply seems to understand its very valid security concerns. And he made good on a promise to relocate the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, a promise he didn't make. That is to say, he didn't conceive of it himself. Republicans and Democrats before him had done it, administration after administration after administration, yet only Donald Trump did it. I mean, and he, like, as I mentioned about Israel and security considerations, not just vis-a-vis -vis Syria and, let's say, some elements of the Palestinian community, it's also Iran. And yet, this is someone who has a hard time, and he still equivocates on calling out white supremacists. This weekend, it was revealed that one of his speechwriters attended a conference run by white nationalists. How do you handle that? How do you respond it's a to real, that? It's a paradox. How do you reconcile these two mm -hmm. things? How do you make sense of them? Um, but I think there are many things about the present that are deeply paradoxical and problematic. And so look, we will praise him and the administration generally when they do things that we agree with. And we will call them out and hold them accountable when we do things that Did you praise him for the move of the embassy? I praised him for the embassy mm -hmm. move because I agreed with it. Mm -hmm. And, then, and I went to Jerusalem at their invitation right. and attended the right. ceremony. Right. But it must and be. I a, said, and yeah. I said, I wish this was done as part of a broader process in some manner. And that's just not my view. I think that's the view of the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and the King Abdullah and many others. So let alone many people in Israeli society and in our Jewish community here at home and around the world. So, look, there is good and there is bad. So the problem is that, as you were alluding to before, when we are so dogmatic, so rigid, that it's either my way or the highway, this or that, this country, this democracy, this republic, is the product of hundreds of years of compromise. Sometimes painful compromise, think the Civil War. Sometimes peaceful compromise. Think about all the legislative accomplishments we've had in the last 150 years. And do you I think find we need to regain that spirit of compromise. Do you find that we can get dogmatic, too, by how we view the threats? For example, you know, I have friends of mine who only view the threat from one angle. For example, the, uh, the white supremacist threat. You spoke about it yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, after weeks of promotion and planning and drama, how many how many of them showed up in D.C.? 24? Sure. Were you surprised by no. the showing? Nope. 
my, I, we have a whole research unit, our Center on Extremism. Last year, we knew the Unite the Rally would be big, and we warned the mayor of Charlottesville, by the way, and the governor mm. that it was going to be large and to get ready. And this year, we said publicly, it's going to be small. And we knew it would be small. Last year was Because they have infighting. Yeah, and so it's a couple things. Number one, there's definitely infighting. We at the ADL and other organizations helped to expose, helped to prepare authorities last year, covered what happened, exposed the white supremacists who showed up last year, helped make their lives really difficult. Because we think if you show up in, in front of a synagogue with torches and say, burn it down, chant Jews will not replace us, threaten to harm and kill people based on their race or their you know, religion or their national origin. You should be called out and held accountable for that. You have the freedom to say it, but we also have the freedom to express that that's an awful thing to say. So with that said, the white supremacists are very incredibly um, adaptive. So yeah, there's been infighting for sure. And many of the ones who are the long-term planners said, you know what, don't show up. This isn't the best way to carry forward. Mm -hmm. So we would be foolish to underestimate the movement and think it's done simply because only a couple dozen people showed up for the rally in D.C. How do you study the movement, Jonathan? Do you have underground, undercover? How do you, how do, you do it? Well, look, I, I think it's safe to say the ADL has been following extremists you know, since we worked with the FBI to uncover you know, rings of German-Americans and other supporters of the Third Reich in the United States in the 1930s. Hmm. We've been working with the authorities since then. Some things we'll do publicly. Some things, let's just say, we'll do less publicly. I think there are a few people in America that are more in tune with the threats, you know, just to the Jewish people here in America, not to mention other minorities. Mm -hmm. So how would you summarize these threats right now? If you can give me a sense of how you weigh them, because it's easy to say we have strength, but we have threats, but are they necessarily all equal? Uh, well, you know, look, I think, I, I think it's safe to say, and you've heard me say this before, that extremism is the enemy of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And I think dogma, rigid, inflexible dogma, is also a danger to democracy. That being said, I would characterize the threats that we face today as a Jewish people in a couple mm -hmm. dimensions. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about trends. I could talk about trends if you like, but I'm talking about very specific threats. So number one, I think you have the extreme right, which we were just talking about, white mm -hmm. nationalists, white supremacists, the so-called alt-right, and their mm -hmm. sort of fellow travelers. It is very dangerous and troubling when their rhetoric and their ideas are suddenly being mainstreamed by the White House or by other, mm -hmm. by other parties. Um, so that's number one, the extreme right. Number two, I think there are elements of what I might call the radical left who are, you know, in, in a Newtonian sense, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. I think there are folks on the left who are also very dangerous. And in what way? Like, well, give me an example. I think the normalization of anti-normalization, right? Mm -hmm. So the adoption of anti-Zionism, an idea that would deny the Jewish people the right to self-determination to which it's widely accepted as conventional wisdom, all people are entitled to. Would you include the BDS movement in that? Elements of it, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't know that everyone who talks about BDS is quote-unquote anti-Zionist, but you better believe the architects of the movement, they certainly are. Mm -hmm. Deeply anti-Semitic, deeply dangerous to the to kind of the Jewish people. And, and also in this radical Israel. left, you have this anti-nationalism movement, and which is obviously well look like Israel. i'll be honest i'm a nationalist i'm a zionist zionist is a form of nationalism i'm a patriot patriotism uh, american patriotism is a form of nationalism i don't think nationalism on its own is a problem 
I think when taken to extremes, it can be. No, I meant anti-nationalism. Oh, anti-nationalism among the radical left. Yeah, yeah. So there are probably elements of what we might characterize as an anti-nationalist community that are bad. You know, there are folks in the Antifa movement who I think are problematic. Now, they lack the organization and the track record of violence that's characterized white supremacy in this country for uh, quite a long time. Uh, But nonetheless, when you show up for a rally, you know, wearing in black so you can't be identified, carrying weapons, uh, yeah, that's problematic. Now, it isn't to say that the white nationalists don't show up with their own weapons, too, don't get me wrong, but I think there are better ways to deal with it than ready for, like, a showdown in the parking lot. I don't think that's the most productive way of resolving Do you take them on equally, the white supremacists, when the black Antifas come with the black, you know? I took a lot of flack from folks on the left last year when I called it out. Uh, around Charlottesville when I said, you know, whatever side you're on, when you come showing up for violence, that's a problem. Yeah, there were folks on the left who didn't like that I said that Mm -hmm. because I think Antifa is justified because of the threat of the neo-Nazis and the threat of the alt-right. But they're not justified for violence. Look, yeah, like, look, I think I'm pretty clear-eyed about the threat that this extreme right poses, but I don't think, again, a radical left that's ready to, like, literally you know, uh, have a mob scene in the parking lot. I'm sorry. I just do not think that's the best way to resolve the issue. And the it third, may feel good. Right. right exactly. That spasm may feel cathartic and fulfilling in some momentary sense. But look, a woman died last year, Heather Hare, when she got run down by one of these guys. And all the people clad in their black masks, what were they going to do, throw themselves in front of the car and get killed themselves? Mm-hmm. The better way to do it was to work with the authorities and make sure if there was going to be a demonstration, here's how you coordinate off, right? Here's how you assure there's the right police presence. And that's why right after Charlottesville last year, we launched something called the Mayor's Compact Against Bigotry. In partnership with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, we organized a 10-point plan for elected officials to prevent a Charlottesville from happening in their community. Literally, it was a 10-point plan, how to deal with demonstrators, anti-bias education in schools, train up the law enforcement, bring the community together, concrete steps. We did it right after Charlottesville, and we had over 300 mayors sign up immediately. By the way, Republicans and Democrats, big cities and small towns, you know, coastal, you know, coastal communities and flyover country, and red states, blue states. And I say that because nobody wants extremists in their midst. You know, it's funny. I hear you speak, Jonathan. It's like we have a similar job because one of my big missions in life is to help tone down the anger and bring a sense of radical reason to the conversation. Yeah. And you have really this enormous infrastructure and ability to sort of inject this kind of radical reason by taking on all sides equally wherever you go, wherever evil goes, Mm -hmm. and you call it out equally regardless Mm -hmm. of politics, and that's what I'm hearing right now, and it seems that uh, not too many organizations that are doing that in a credible way. Well, I mean, I can't comment on the other organizations per se, but I think encoded in the DNA of the ADL, you know, the mission statement that was written in 1913, that the organization would be created to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. doesn't say in that whatever, those dozen words. Who you voted for. Who you vote for. Doesn't say how you choose to affiliate from a political perspective. Doesn't say we do it only in certain situations. It's, and it's an amazing, audacious, and Jewish idea that we will fight for ourselves and also fight for others. Think about it. In 1913, David, the Jewish community in the United States didn't have a leg to stand on. None of the economic resources or social capital or political influence that we have today in this town or this country. And yet... The idea that these Jews would say, we will fight for ourselves 
this weak, vulnerable community, but also fight for others? Well, you that know, was very audacious. You're thing. being tested now uh, more than ever. I mean, I read an article that fessed up among uh, editors of major papers. They said they realized that the Trump administration is so uniquely, singularly problematic that they realize that there's now biases in their reporting that they would never otherwise accept. Mm -hmm. So I could see how this would be an extremely difficult situation for you to try to keep politics out of your organization. Um, yeah, I mean, as a 501c3, we can't be political. We try very hard to be principled. We try very hard to be kind of purposeful and not partisan or political. And even within your employees, I mean. Of course. You know? course. Uh, I'm sure you can come under heat if you, for some reason, are not, don't call out uh, Trump enough, for example, or what have you. I mean, I'll the politics you, has infiltrated our lives. Everywhere. And I guess maybe politics was always there, but now it has a certain degree of, you know, of volatility and it has a charge it didn't before. So I'll tell you, the election was Tuesday in November and a couple days later, like two days later, we had a staff meeting. And everyone around the big conference table in New York at our headquarters. I was giving out milk and cookies to the employees. <laughs> yeah, well, I think like a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was a mo it was a moment, and um, some of my employees came in, and they said, "Okay, now, literally, they said, now we're hashtag." And they bang their hands at the table. We're hashtag resistance, and I was like, "No, we're not." That's exactly what I had in mind, really? Jonathan, when I asked you that question. Yeah. Because you probably had that kind of energy coming from your employees. And I said, no, like we're, we're not and will never be hashtag resistance. Now, make no mistake, we will resist. What's we will wrong? resist what's wrong. We will resist intolerance, but we will not be. You know, I, you know, my friend Anthony Romero runs the ACLU. I have a tremendous respect for Anthony. And on Thursday, that day after the election, he had an ad in the New York Times that basically said, Mr. President, we'll see you in court. We don't have that luxury. So we will fight tooth and nail. Uh, to preserve and protect our civil rights. But you know what? We also need to work with the law side of the administration to enforce those civil rights mm -hmm. and to go after those who would um, perpetrate hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And we will fight tooth and nail to deal with uh, anti-Semitism or intolerance when it shows up in the schools. And we need to work with the authorities to bring our anti-bias education in the schools. So we will fight tooth and nail uh, for foreign policies that protect the democratic and Jewish state of Israel and Jewish minorities persecuted, you know, um, uh, Jewish minorities in very difficult circumstances around the world, right? And we will push for an anti-Semitism envoy, which still has not been named at the State Department. It's a Shonda. And yet, we need the State Department to work with us to make sure, again, for example, that the Islamic Republic of Iran is appropriately understood and there are a set of policies in place to protect our national interests. So, you know, I think we are establishmentarian as well as we are, um, you know, again, resisting when we see things that are wrong. Now, you've taken a lot of heat, Jonathan, in the Jewish world uh, from the right. There's been so much published and you've seen them. You might have read some of them. Uh, You've taken, like, criticism. It must not be easy. How do you react to that? Well, I don't know. I think I have a fairly thick skin. Mm -hmm. I've been protested by the right. I've been protested by the left. Um, I hear it when I go to shul on Saturday morning. You hear what? Over the kiddish table. <laughs> People say to me, why did you do that? Or why did you say so-and-so? Does it usually come from the right? Uh, no. I mean, look, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, you know, this, this organization, this inappropriately named organization, Jewish Voices for Peace, 
has made ADL their number one target across the country. Mm. They try to take issue with some of the work that we do with law enforcement. They've tried to conflate um, issues oh, right. happening in the, the complicated issues in the theater of the Middle East and with Israel and the Palestinian Authority as a, that somehow has something to do with law enforcement issues you know, in communities of color in the U.S. These things are utterly and profoundly unrelated to mm -hmm. one another. Nonetheless, for an organization like this with an ax to grind and an agenda to pursue, they try to make that conflation, and so they go after us, mm. the ADL. I know. They came to us with the story oh, that I've read it. I've read it. So look, like, um, I get it from all sides, and I also get that this is just part of the job, and this is what it means to be in public life. Mm -hmm. I didn't take the job because I thought it would be easy. Mm -hmm. I didn't take the job because I was looking for praise. I took the job because I cared deeply about Jewish continuity. Now, were you disappointed when Starbucks sort of pulled back a little bit? They had announced a big agreement. It was all over the news. And then all of a sudden, I guess, who knows? They just got cold feet. What was, I, so I think, what was that about? So I think it was, uh, it was a moment that I don't think was the, the span of the moment wasn't well reported. So I'll give you the story in two minutes. So Starbucks had an incident in a store in Philadelphia over the course of that where some African-American customers were essentially arrested. They came into the store. They wanted to use the bathroom without buying anything, which is generally the policy. I know because I used to work at Starbucks, as you mentioned. And uh, long story short, police came in, took them out in handcuffs. So over the course of that weekend, Starbucks officials called a number of organizations, a number of individuals, including me. And they asked, would ADL be willing to help them with some long-term training for their employees? To which I said, yes, because we do anti-bias training. Um, two days later, I was sent a press release right before it came out that mentioned our name along with several other organizations and also contemplated closing the stores for an afternoon that was going to take place about a month later. My immediate response to that was, well, we can't do that. How will you do that? I happen to know. Again, I used to be there. I used to work at the company. There are 150,000 employees spread out across, I don't know, something like 8,000 stores that are owned by the company You know, in just the United States. I don't have enough trainers to do that. And we're arguably the largest in the United States at this kind of work. So my immediate reaction was, I can't do that. I said, don't worry. So then the story broke, and it looked like all the organizations that were going to be involved would do the short-term thing, the long-term thing. I already said I couldn't do the short-term thing. Um, but some of the activists, again, folks I would ca characterize on the radical left, went after the ADL. They said, why would a Jewish organization be working on an issue that affected African Americans? Now, what I would note is that the press release didn't clarify why they, we were being involved. Right, and they made a correlation. I think a false correlation. Right. Um, and I understood the frustration. I mean, African-American, if you've got friends who are people of color, they can tell you the stories about being followed when they walk in the drugstore, being pulled over when they're driving through a neighborhood. Um, I get that. And so I understand why the issues were so sensitive. With that being said, when we were attacked, and by the way, we, so those of us in the Jewish community or in our little Jewish kind of echo chamber, we focused on, on ADL being criticized. Guess what? People in the Sikh community, in the Muslim community, in the disabled community, in the Latino community said, whoa, 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 whoa. Our people get profiled too when they walk into Starbucks. And so there was a hue and a cry from many quarters about a training that would only be focused on African Americans when many people are affected by the kind of implicit bias because they walk in wearing a hijab or in a wheelchair or wearing a turban or in some other state. Yeah. And we, now that may have missed us. But that was a big topic of conversation in these other communities. And so it, uh, the Starbucks issued a second release a few days later 
that clarified it won't just be African-American groups, it'll be many groups. The ADL would work on the long-term training in three groups focused on African-American issues, would do the initial training. Um, but in our Jewish echo chamber, it was seen as, aha, somehow ADL is not doing the high-profile thing. To be honest with you, a few days later, I, I, so I reached out to Starbucks that I'm hearing this. They released a statement a few days later, I'll send it to you, that said ADL's a valued partner. They haven't been demoted, but that got missed in the way that our Jewish community covered that issue. Well, one thing that I have not missed um, is the sad uh, status of the relationship between Jews and African Americans. I'm a little bit of an idealist. When I look back on the days of Abram Joshua Heschel mm -hmm. marching with Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. and I think of the civil rights era when Jews were so involved, and I may be overstating the case a little bit here, but it seemed to me that we were a lot closer than Jonathan. Well, look, here's what I would say. So it's absolutely true that, that the Heschel-King relationship and the work that so many American Jews did in the 50s and part of the freedom, freedom Ride and in the 60s was had a profound impact on our community. And I think the outcome of that phase of the civil rights movement, for sure. Now, it's also... It's one of the big reasons so many Jews voted for Obama. Um one of these like this a sense of historical connection and there are there are deep historical connections there's a shared experience there's a common sense of suffering and a reality of overcoming i think those things are real and they remain with that said we also sometimes romanticize look in his you know in those 60s there were also folks who were very oppositional to dr king like stokely carmichael and kwame ture and angela davis and others who were very against and spoke out loudly against the role of American Jews in the civil rights movement, spoke out against the state of Israel, certainly after 1967. So it wasn't always as romantic as we remember mm -hmm. it. Um, that being said, I'm proud of the fact that at the ADL, our second amicus brief filed before the Supreme Court was the Brown v. Board of Education case, mm -hmm. that landmark case to desegregate schools. And the ADL took position in favor of desegregation when it wasn't popular to do in 1952. And I'm proud that ADL had people on those freedom rides, and I'm proud that ADL, my predecessor, a guy named Ben Epstein, who was the head of ADL in February 1965, not only did he drive down and march in Selma, he brought his whole leadership team from New York to drive down to Selma, and ADL regional directors from ADL offices around the country, all on their own, from Atlanta, from New Orleans, from Denver, from Chicago, they all drove to Alabama and marched. So the ADL has been there. It hasn't always been easy. We might not agree with some of our partner organizations, but from Ben Epstein marching in 1965 with Dr. King to me giving keynote remarks at the NAACP's annual meeting last month in San Antonio, I was there. Mm -hmm. Introducing Derek Johnson, CEO of the NAACP. Next time you got to let the Jewish Journal know. <laughs> <laughs> I will try to do I'll that. Send the reporter there. Look, I, I'm proud like that, that we have a relationship. It will, like, mm -hmm. look, uh, my wife and I don't get don't agree on everything, right? Relationships are not always easy, but you focus on what matters. I heard a poignant line, Jonathan, on this. I don't remember by whom. Somebody said, you know, what happened to the relationship? And an African American leader said, you stopped being a minority. It's almost like, you know, we got victims of our own success. We became mm -hmm. so assimilated and, and successful that that created an inherent uh, daylight between the two groups, which is something... Yeah, look, I mean, I do think it's, it's fair to say that we have... A, I mean, people talk about, quote, white privilege. It's fair to say that Jews have succeeded here in a way that I think 
that the folks who founded ADL in 1913 couldn't even contemplate, and in part in our increasingly multi-ethnic, multicultural, multicolored society, many of us can pass in ways that many African Americans or people of color can't. And we do, and when we do try to help, it's very much one way. And there's something patronizing about the one way, which is, you know, we can help you, we can help you, and makes them sort of on the weak side. I remember speaking to Heschel's daughter, Susanna Heschel, mm-hmm. when I did a story. And one of the things that was fascinating that she told me is that her father spoke about what we can learn from African Americans. And one of the things he said is the way they pray in church. We have so much to learn from them, just as, as one example. So I think this idea of creating sort of a two-way relationship might be something that can there's rekindle m- there's a deeper relationship. C- there is work to be done, arm-in-arm, uh, hand-in-hand, as communities with, with a shared experience, with similar values, and there will be those. You also have to remember this. There are those who try to drive a wedge between our communities. There are those who try to exploit legitimate differences to say there is some real gap we have that is what we need to resist Mm -hmm. so whether there are those who try to drive wedges from the west wing or try to do it from activist from the activist circles whether they do it from the left or the right what we as a jewish people can't afford to do is to allow others to claim our narrative others to divide us from our natural allies, others to separate us from our core values. That's what we need to find. And not to let politics get in the way as well, because I'm thinking of, you know, Cory Booker. He used to come to my office when I had an ad agency, and, you know, I've been at Shabbat tables with him, and I've seen over the years that his connection with Israel, with the Jewish people, seems to be fraying. I'm sure you know him. I know Corey. Look, I I tell you what. When you see something like that, do you see an opportunity? I happened to speak to Corey a couple weeks ago, and he talked to me through the situation he had with that. He was, you know, a photograph was taken of him at the recent Netroots conference in Vegas with that sign. And he told me, and I believe Corey. I believe Corey because we didn't agree on the JCPOA. He was for it. I was against it. But he has decades and decades of fighting for the state of Israel. Of, of, you know, being a voice in favor of the Jewish state in, in some audiences. That's still there? A hundred percent it's still mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And he, he's been on the record as saying BDS is anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. So there's, Corey's got a lot of uh, good. So he made a mistake by allowing himself to be uh, signed. I, I get that. I understand sometimes people put things in my hands. I don't know what's going on when you come in and out of a situation. That being said, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Let's see how Corey votes. But mm-hmm. he's got decades and decades of fighting for the Jewish commu- with the Jewish community, defending the state of Israel. It's a pretty strong track record. Right. And also culturally, outside of politics, you know, the, the African-Americans who are in the culture, whether it's sports or music or what have you, is that something that you look at as a way of creating a rapprochement between the two groups? Well, you know, look at the ADL. Last year, we launched something called the Sports Leadership Council. The Sports Leadership Council includes the commissioners of almost every single professional sport, MLB, NBA, NFL, WNBA, NASCAR, USTA, Pro Golf, and, and, and uh, NCAA, maybe missing one or two, uh, soccer, MLS, all of them, and uh, a lot of owners and a lot of athletes. And so we're doing that because we think sports should be a way to bring people together rather than dividing them. So there'll probably be some opportunities there. But again, when you're talking, a lot of athletes have spoken out recently about some of the issues relating to police brutality and the mistreatment of people of color by some elements in law enforcement. They have legitimate concern. We need to listen to them and hear them out with respect and honor their own, their own sort of felt experience. 
even as we try to fight on these, even when we try to fight against some of these forms of intolerance. So sometimes we have a role to play in front. Sometimes we have a role to play behind the scenes. We need to have the humility. And I would like to think, you know, the uh, sechel, to know when to show up and when to stand down. For all the non-Jewish listeners, sechel means wisdom, some kind of wisdom. It, it's a sign of how interesting this conversation has gone that about 20 minutes ago we started listing the three threats. One was the extreme right, two is radical left, and we haven't gotten to the third one yet. I think the third left is sort of faith-infused extremism. And in particular, I think the issue that the Jewish community has been facing is the challenge of radical Islam. Right here in America? Um, yeah, in America and Europe in particular. We've seen mm-hmm. violence perpetrated against Jewish people in places like France, Belgium, Germany, by, um, by individuals, uh, of the, by Muslims who, are, who come back from Syria or otherwise infused with some of the hateful rhetoric from preachers who uh, you know, claim there's a jihad, they have to fight jihad and things like that. That's very problematic. Now look, at the same time, at the ADL, we work with with Muslim communities hand in hand to fight not just anti, you know, not just Jew hatred, but bias against Muslims. And so we have a lot to be done together. Um, but I would be, you know, it would be, um, it would be wrong to discount that because that is a real issue. And when you do take them on, do you get accused of being Islamophobic? Of course. So, so you know, look, I, on the one hand, when we call out some of this, sometimes there are those who accuse us of being Islamophobic. And then we partner with American Muslims. There are those who accuse us of being naive and self-hating Jews. I want to ask you an unfair question. There's criticism on both sides. I want to ask you an unfair question right now among these three threats, the first one from the extreme right, second one from the radical left, and the third from faith-infused hatred like radical Islam. Mm -hmm. If you had to rank them, I mean, if you have limited resources, and, you know, are they equal in your mind? Look, I think it's doing a disservice to the work to say that, well, there's this and this and this. You don't rank them. Uh, not yeah. the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like you can't reduce this. Mm-hmm. Like, who's in first place in the American League East? But you can conceive. Or like American Idol, which is the best performing No, but singer. you can conceive of a situation where this threat might be considered more bigger, more dangerous, for example. That's a... Well, here's what that I would tell you. That doesn't seem too implausible. So the extreme right has a degree of hard power in this country because their acolytes and some of their disciples have found their way into the halls of government in ways that are deeply problematic because they're building policy. And if I look at the track record of the last 25 years, you know, 70-plus percent of the murders and the extremist-related murders in the United States were perpetrated by white supremacists. So the extreme right is very problematic, and you can look at the mortality rate, and it proves that. And it's not as visible as at a march in Charlottesville, for example. Yeah, like this is, this is, I wouldn't call it a red herring, but this is, this is, if you were a doctor, you would say that's not really a symptom of the, of the state of the virus in the body. On the other hand, elements of this radical left have penetrated our college campuses and infected the debate about Israel and tried to, again, create wedges between the Jewish community and other uh, minority groups or other marginalized groups. And so they have seemed to have a kind of soft power. That is a contrast to the hard power of the extreme right, but that soft power of the radical left is also very problematic. That, that's very well said. And then if you look at what's happening again in Europe and you look at uh, the, the revolution exported by Iran or you look at the hateful rhetoric of an Erdogan or you look at some of the other radicals who committed terrible acts of violence against the Jewish people who might be infused by a, by a distorted sense of Islam. It's one of the great too. ironies of Jewish history that we finally... F- got our state, our own state, 
to, to fight off anti-Semitism, and now it's being used as one of the primary instruments of anti-Semitism. It's a tragic I irony. Think it's, well, yeah, you know, look, I think it's interesting. There are things that people slander that people used to say about Jewish people that they now want to imply co company, but they're happy to basically, basically express the same slander, but now they can say it toward the Jewish state. Mm -hmm. They won't say Jews are illegitimate. They could say the Jewish state is illegitimate. Right. They won't say Jews don't belong. They'll say the Jewish state doesn't belong. Such a convenient. They won't say Jews aren't greedy. They'll say the Jewish state is greedy. You know, they, so right. it, it's interesting how Israel has become a convenient a way convenient for anti-Semites to express these these feelings, which unfortunately have been have been part of the human experience for the last you know five thousand years. And it's still going strong. So, Jonathan, if these are the three threats right now that you've identified, mm -hmm. not just for the Jews, but for all minorities, mm -hmm. how do you see the future? Where are these threats going? Well, I think one of the reasons why, you know, the extreme right, the so-called alt-right has gotten a toehold is they've really exploited technology. And so what I'd say to you, the trend that I deeply worry about, and we're very focused on now at ADL, is, you know, Internet and society. So last year we opened up a center in Silicon Valley. I think we're the first Jewish group to have a dedicated presence in Silicon Valley, the first civil rights group. And our center for technology and society is focused on fighting cyber hate and trying to neutralize online harassment before it happens. And this is critical because Facebook is indeed, it's the front line in fighting hate. Think about it. Facebook today has 2.2 billion people on the platform. Twitter reports something like six thousand messages every second. YouTube reports hundreds of hours of user-generated content uploaded to their website every minute. The scale, the, the scope of data Enormous. flowing across the web and you know infiltrating our phones and our homes is unlike anything we've seen in the history of humanity. And so we believe at the ADL as the extremists have adapted and adopted these new technologies, we need to take the fight to them. So we are now working hand-in-hand -hand with Google, Facebook, um, Snapchat, Twitter, Microsoft, Reddit, all the big companies. Number one, when there's an incident of hate speech on the platform, we help them to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Number two, we've gotten all of them around the table to share best practices and how they make their terms of service tighter to tamp down on hateful speech. Number three, we're working not just with their policy people and their lawyers. We're now working with their product people and engineers. We have new projects underway around artificial intelligence and machine learning, around using augmented reality and virtual reality, around new explorations around blockchain. I mean, so I'm incredibly excited about how we can create an agenda of innovation and employ that to protect the Jewish people and other minorities. Well, online. you know, you got a tough job because this this is the wrong country for this job. This is the country in the world where hate speech is not illegal. Well, look, I mean, I, I'm a fierce and ferocious advocate of the First Amendment. So many of the blessings that we enjoy today are because of the freedoms that are provided to us by that document. When I tell some of my friends that, they, they're shocked. I tell them that actually, believe it or not, hate speech is not illegal. It is. It's horrible. It's immoral. But it's not. But illegal. you know, it's Justice Brandeis, right? Justice Brandeis, who was the one who delineated between hate speech and harmful speech. Correct. So hateful speech, right? Saying ugly, intolerant things 
we have to be willing to accept it. It's the price of our democracy. But saying harmful things with the intent of intimidating or terrorizing people or, you know, literally to cause them harm. Incitement, right. That is not... That is, Fire in a theater. Right, exactly. Right. So freedom of speech is not the freedom to slander people. So this is where, like, you know, there have been some recent debates about Alex Jones. We came out in favor of taking Alex Jones off of these platforms. Forget the fact that Facebook and Twitter, these are not, you know, this is not the public square. These are companies that have a sh- responsibility to their shareholders. But more than that, more than that. And so in the same way that the Marriott might decide they don't want the white nationalist you know, convention to take place on their property, so too can Facebook say, I don't want this kind of speech that's designed to harm people on my network because it makes many of my users unsafe. But here's the other thing. You are not allowed to lie and slander people without being accountable for that. And so indeed, I think, just as the Jewish Journal would not print stories that you knew slandered people with malice by perpetrating fictions against them, so too does Facebook have responsibility. So, you know, Alex Jones, if you're going to say these horrible, hateful things uh, that will literally cause harm to the parents of children who were murdered in cold blood in Newtown, Connecticut, kindergartners, mm-hmm. yes, Facebook has a right to say, the, we can't uh, have that on our platform. Why? Because then they're liable for it. The criticism that I heard is that there were many examples of similar incitement kind of speech from the radical Islam that was not taken down on Facebook. So this isn't to say that the work is done, that it should start and stop with Alex Jones. I wouldn't say that. But if there are people who are using and abusing the privileges in the Constitution... Regardless of where it comes from. Yes, to, to intentionally, intentionally cause harm and put people at physical risk, then yes, all of us who care about our democracy and who care about who care about that First Amendment have a responsibility to stand up and defend it. You know, Jonathan, I, I, I wonder sometimes if you get amused when you see this stuff on campuses and you're dealing now with the worst kind of speech that's, that's potentially violent and slanderous and all that, and then you go on a college campus and you hear about these microaggressions yeah. where students are aggressed and find intolerable... Um, a email about Halloween costumes and stuff that seems to be at the whole other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, again, I think it's I, I'm willing to acknowledge that college campuses benefit from a degree of academic freedom and the kind of intellectual exploration that 18 to 22 year olds want to engage in. Okay, I get that, and yet it is I would say, as you put it, the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, generation fragile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we could all develop thicker skin. But, you know, the costume you wear, even if I don't like it the way you dress up, that is part of life. Correct. And and then when you really highlight unacceptable speech because it's insightful and it's slanderous, then it's taken more seriously. But if you start to have this where any speech that offends me is unacceptable. Yeah, I think that's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, again, I go back to Brandeis' definition. Um, And so I might not like the way you dress. But I've got to be willing to accept that. However, you know, if you show up in front of my house in a Ku Klux Klan outfit, I suppose, with fake guns cocked at my window or with torches saying I'm going to burn your house down, yeah, I think that's that crosses a line. And so we have to have the willingness to put aside relativism, you know, and have some clear lines about what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And Look, um, looking you know, forward, I think we're trying to fight that fight. Looking forward next year or two, Jonathan, uh, what are I mean, you have so many priorities, you can't do it all. Are there two or three things in particular? 
Uh, so, you know, when I came on board three years ago, uh, we did some strategic planning, and I announced about nine, nine months in I was going to make three big bets, three big bets based on where I see the world going, where I want ADL to play. So this was in the spring of 16, by the way, long before the election that took place that fall, long before the political conventions that, you know, that sort of enshrined the nominees. I said, number one, cyber. Mm -hmm. Cyber. So we are taking, you know, the, the fight to Facebook, finding ways to work with industry and calling it out when it needs to happen. So number one, cyber and the threat of cyber hate. Number two, extremism. And we saw the rising spectrum streams. And this is early 2016. I think we made the right bet. And number three, inclusion. I felt like there was a need to find ways to lock arms and to work hand in hand with different marginalized communities and to regain the, you know, the fight for the center. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to wage that fight. We're trying to take it to extremism and find innovative ways to deal with it. And we're trying to make investments in cyber and... Um, but and bring bring the heat there too. So that's where we're where we're working on. Okay, and don't forget the new number four that you brought up today. Your uh, Jewish humor department. <laughs> uh, that, 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 you heard it that, here first. They, they heard folks. it here first. <laughs> so I want a couple more questions. Sure. One, uh, you're off on an interesting trip tomorrow. With, I want you to mm. talk about that because you're uh, going to the border. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So tomorrow, uh, myself. Tomorrow's uh, Tuesday. Tomorrow's Tuesday. So this Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, that would be August 21st and 22nd, as CEO of the ADL in collaboration with my uh, friend and colleague Mark Hetfield, who's the CEO of HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. We're leading a group of Jewish CEOs and communal professionals, including the CEOs of the National Council of Jewish Women, Repair the World, American Jewish World Service, Jewish Public Affairs Council, and a number of others on a fact-finding trip to go visit the U.S.-Mexican border. You know, we've been very concerned about the way that the new immigration policies of this administration, uh, we don't like the policies themselves, to be clear, but also how they have been sort of prosecuted in the real world. And so the way that we've seen a separation of children and families that I find fairly inexplicable, a way that we've kept people out of the country simply on the basis of their faith, which I also find fairly mm -hmm. incomprehensible, uh, and a way that we've been dealing with, you know, people within our own community mm -hmm. who are Latino or particularly of Mexican origin or descent. And so we're going down to the border to meet government officials, to meet community leaders, to meet social activists, to learn for ourselves what's happening, and to hopefully bring those insights back to the work that we do every day. When you study an issue like this, you personally, Jonathan, do you try to look at both sides of an issue? I mean, this uh, the undocumented immigrants who are really illegal aliens, according to the definition of the U.S. government. Do you try to see both sides of an issue, the idea of enforcing the law relative to, you know, illegal yeah, aliens? And uh, what do you net out? I mean, this gets back to where we started, right? right? Which is, I mean, we're trying very hard to be principled, not political. We try to look at policies, not partisanship. So it's not just about hearing from one side. You want to go meet with the authorities as well to understand their perspective. Right, and right. Look, I mean, with respect to immigration, there's no doubt in my mind that we need secure borders and a sound immigration policy. Yes. Uh, the whole, where I, what I have a problem with is this idea that, what I take issue with is the notion that immigration is a problem. It Correct. is. It is what has made right. this country great. It's why you're here. It's why I'm here. 
It's why my wife is here. It's why so many of us are here. And so I think a humane immigration policy is not only in our national interest, it's consistent with our core morals as a country. Right, and, and also the idea of immigrants who want to assimilate in the American system with American values and all that. Do you feel that that's still as strong today as it used to be when your parents and grandparents came? Well, you know, I'll be candid in that. I, I mean, I have been, I've had the benefit of being to an immigration or, I'm sorry, a naturalization ceremony where immigrants are naturalized American citizens, and it's the most inspiring, uplifting experience you could possibly imagine. So I can't myself do the comparison between that versus when my My grandparents came here, not my folks. But um, I know that there's something incredibly appealing about the American dream. And I know there's something extraordinary about what our country represents to people who are oppressed and seeking freedom around the world, trying to escape tyranny, looking for liberty. And I think it is incumbent upon us as Americans to remain true to those core values. One of the things that concerns me... And by the way, yeah. when we didn't, it's when my ancestors were shut out from this country and they were trying to escape the Shoah, right? I, yep. I so. wonder, I mean, m maybe I'm, I'm misviewing it, but I wonder if uh, I have a view of um, our grandparents and our parents' generation having a little greater sense of I'm coming here to really give back to America. And I get a sense sometimes that the, the immigrants of today, it's more of a sense of what can I get from America rather than what can I give to America. And I think we might be partly responsible for that because we've created a certain... We, we as Americans? We Americans have created a worship of victimhood and an obsession with our rights rather than our obligations. Mm -hmm. So I have this view that immigrants coming to this country saying, well, they see the rest of Americans obsessed with rights rather than obligations, right. and it sort of influences them. So maybe, I don't know, I, I, I don't know, uh, I, I'm just not sure I would describe it that way, but I do think that we as a people, whether you were born in some foreign country or born in the United States, right, whether you are a naturalized citizen or someone who inherited their citizenship, um, I do think refocusing on our obligations to the country is long overdue. My you know, favorite line ever, mm. I think, in American history. It was President uh, Kennedy's line from his favorite line. address. Favorite yeah. line. Ask what you, you can know, do for your I, country. When I worked at the White House, I didn't work on Middle East policy, but I did work on how could we, you know, accept my, part of my strategy in the innovation portfolio was how could we accelerate economic recovery, boost job creation, and strengthen communities. And as part of that work, I was responsible for AmeriCorps, you know, the AmeriCorps program. Oh, yeah. And so that was all about young people giving back to their communities. So amazing. Is, that, is there room for that in the big ADL canvas? I would actually say, I mean, I, I really deeply admire David Eisner and his leadership of this, of this nonprofit Repair the World, which focuses on getting mm -hmm. young Jewish, um, getting Jewish young people to serve in their communities. I think the idea of national service is long overdue. I think it would be one of the healthiest things for the country if you took young people, regardless of their class, regardless of their you know, where they were born or how they pray or what they look like or who they love, you know, any of those things, and put them to work side by side in our communities, teaching kids, you know, rebuilding neighborhoods, planting forests, digging ditches, but the act of a shared experience. We see the results of the IDF. The IDF helps forge Israel's character, and it renews every single year with a new batch of recruits. Because you're constantly giving, giving yeah. to the country. It's, a, it's what you said. It's, it's less about... 
what you're entitled to and more about what you're obligated to deliver. A rabbi once told me, you don't uh, give to someone because you love them. You love them because you give to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. On that note, thank you so much for giving us mm. so much of your time today, uh, Jonathan, and hope to have you back one day. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.